0: Welcome, I'm Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki In Memoriam podcast. This podcast is created by Anna Peżanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute New York. Penderecki In Memoriam podcast unveils a multifaceted portrait of Krzysztof Penderecki with commentary from musicians, colleagues, radio programmers, and writers who lend insight and memories of Poland's greatest modern composer, This podcast is part of Penderecki in Memoriam Worldwide Project, honoring the life and legacy of the great composer. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. Academy and Golden Globe award-winning composer Elliot Goldenthal creates works for film, orchestra, theater, opera, and ballet. In addition to his more than 30 film scores, Goldenthal, who is an ASCAP Founders Award winner, has received multiple Tony, Obi, and Drama Desk nominations for his more than a dozen theatrical productions. The composer's symphony in G-sharp minor had its world premiere with the Pacific Symphony, and his two-act opera Grendel, directed by Julie Taymor, was a finalist for the 2006 Pulitzer Prize in Music, premiering at the Los Angeles Opera, and was a centerpiece for New York's Lincoln Center Festival. As a major figure of the 20th century's Polish avant-garde, Krzysztof Penderecki's use of aleatoric notation and controlled improvisation was a huge influence on Eliot Goldenthal as a student, young composer and throughout his career. The two finally met in 2015 when Goldenthal's Trumpet Concerto was presented at the Krakow Film Music Festival. Elliot Goldenthal is here with us to talk about The Great Maestro. Hi Elliot, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Let's start back in Brooklyn. As the story goes, when you were a student in the 70s studying scores, you were in the Brooklyn Public Library at Grand Army Plaza, and you pulled a score off the shelf one day which had a picture of Penderecki, who you recalled looked like a magician.
1: The magician, I don't know where that quote comes from, but it was a kind of um, very intense character, Jet Black and his glasses. I was at the library at my last year of high school. It must've been 1969 or something, 1970. And I looked at the score it could have been the Threnody, it could have been his first string quartet. I looked at a picture of the maestro and uh, I just couldn't believe it. His scores and his beard kind of melded together, which is like giant swashes of jet black. Then I went to uh, the listening library some days later with the score, and I couldn't believe it. I just could not believe the sound. Of course, I wasn't living in a vacuum. I came from a place where I was well acquainted with you know, uh, Milton Babbitt, avant-garde New York School composers, not to mention the primal scream of John Coltrane in his most uh, avant-garde period. So I wasn't new to uh, expressionist music in this fashion, but the way that Penderewski was able to coax those sounds out of a string quartet, out of a chorus, out of a string orchestra, out of brass, that uh, Pittsburgh Overture score for mainly wind instruments, I just couldn't believe the sonorities, the emotional impact. Someone hit your chest with a sledgehammer.
0: And I suppose at that point, you never could have imagined that Someday you'd be in Katowice premiering your trumpet concerto on a program with his music and with him sitting right behind you and congratulating you.
1: It was an old Pantoresky program. I think it was celebrating his uh, 80th birthday year. He was 79 at the time. You can imagine the fear I had hearing my music through his ears and wondering what he must be thinking. I couldn't imagine being in that position as a student. But I was lucky after that to study with John Krugliano. That was my final year in high school when I entered the Conservatory Manhattan School of Music. And he was also very much influenced or recognized the brilliance of Krzysztof Penderecki's use of notation and his uh, mastery of form through that notation. It's not only sonorities, not only the colors of sounds, not only the uh, brazen use of string textures and orchestral textures, it was also the deepness of the form. Being a uh, admirer of Pandarsky's music and then being a double admirer of John Corigliano, who taught me, he coaxed and uh, took some of the sounds off this score and took me through it as a master, does a student. In my younger days, and because of the influence of Julie Taymor's life on my life, I used to compose a lot of work for theater, a lot of work for avant-garde theater, a non-traditional theater, and especially for puppet theater. And that's one thing Penderecki, in grotesque theater in Krakow, he composed like More than 40 pieces for uh, puppet theater. Little, little, we would say, off-Broadway or kind of a cabaret-type theater. Of course, they had to hide out in secret bars and places and taverns under the ground below the surface of uh, Krakow. The same motivation is kind of freeing you up where the music is not taken that seriously. Experimentation, adventurism was very important. Also, in the early days of my study at the conservatory, Colombian-Princeton electronic music school was amazing and had a big influence on American composers. And Pandoretsky, with the early electronic experiments, also, according to him, was very influential over the way he treated the orchestra. It had a a more of a expansive palette, and a richness, and a scarier element. His work canon for a string orchestra and two tapes tied in both of
0: those worlds. You're surrounded by John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Jimi Hendrix, and those musical influences were with you prior to discovering Penderecki, your musical life and your listening life. How were you first influenced by Penderecki's compositional and orchestral techniques?
1: analyze how he was able to coax that sound out of the orchestra. Uh, One thing that John Corigliano was very instructive about, he was able to get textures and sonorities that, if you wrote it out in traditional European notation, the rehearsal would take like 30 hours. You know, if you look at the uh, complexity of some of Elliot Carter scores, for example, that sounds great, but it takes devotion in the rehearsal period. When you have a three-hour rehearsal situation and you have one hour to devote to your piece, Penderecki's approach is a way to create illusions of those sound textures without the enormous burden of rehearsals as long as the composer knows exactly how to coax the orchestra.
0: So you're saying that the notational practices were a way to deal with the dissonance, deal with the complex rhythms, deal with the tone clusters, the glissandi. All of these effects were really only achieved in a time-effective way through the notation. It helped.
1: It's impossible to categorize Pandoretsky's music and reduce it to uh, various things. But if you have nine uh, violins playing across the strings between the uh, the bridge and the tailpiece, for example, I don't want to be technical, but if you have 20 strings doing that, it produces a type of complexity. If you try to write it out in actual notes, it would take forever to transcribe and even perform. Also, there was a correspondence between the graphic art in the 1940s and 50s, Franz Klein, Motherwell, Jackson Pollock, all of paintings, the abstract expressionism. It was something that I was exposed to, but Pandorewski's music was the closest to that. And seeing that large, large paintings of Franz Klein with his giant black lines across the canvas, hearing this uh, entire bass and cello section playing semitones and
0: quarter-tones and of sound. In 2018, you visited the maestro and his wife, Ellis the, at their home, and you toured the garden, which is nothing short of amazing. How do you remember this meeting? I just got off the plane.
1: I was going into rehearsal those days for uh, the trumpet concerto, and uh, with great trepidation, here I was going to have to uh, be on the same program of uh, all Penderecki concert. Meeting him at his house, I thought I was being uh, overwhelmed. I thought I was going to be overwhelmed by this amazing figure. When I met him, I saw a tremendous warmth in his eyes, a tremendous, simple, gracious interaction he had with me, and I assume with other younger composers or his contemporaries. We spent hours and hours. We talked about many subjects, including his times with uh, his reactions to Bruckner, for example. He was taken by uh, Anton Bruckner's symphonies. A host of subjects. And then walking around his uh, gardens, you know, he was a a botanist. He felt that uh, his work planting trees uh, is kind of an unfinished symphony. And he had this labyrinth on his property. He used to get lost, just wander alone. It's kind of very telling. He really, really enjoyed that process of walking alone in this labyrinth that he created for himself. A labyrinth in nature at the same time, trying to work out his grand structures.
0: I wanted to touch on three Penderecki pieces. You've referenced a couple of them. All had great significance in your musical life. Penderecki received an award for the canon. The piece was written in 1962. Usually in early performances, there would be a lot of controversy, but this piece did not. It really enhanced his profile. I don't believe it's a long piece, maybe eight and a half minutes or something like that.
1: The impact was tremendous. It challenges the ear. It's not exactly tonal music. The thing that influenced me is the mixture of tape and orchestra. Electronically, but not trying to sound like an orchestra, just with uh, coloration. And then the orchestra was almost trying to sound like the electronic component. The mixture of tape and orchestra playing simultaneously was uh, something that I was first introduced to by that Canon piece. It has a riveting effect because you have the dead, unhuman, recorded sound. And then you have This uh, complex community of human beings playing something live at the same time, it's interaction between something that's already dead and fixed, something that is alive and trembling. I was really taken by that experience of listening and then
0: applying it to a cinema application. With the two tape machines, there were something like 208 parts, which really created this spatial, three-dimensional sound.
1: Who knows? You know, uh, when you hear it, you can't discern it unless you come from Mars or something. You can't hear really hear the, all the levels of deep structure that he applied to it, but when you study it, it becomes more apparent. But in the listening experience, you're just taken into this spatial world of, you know, it's like opening up a door in a dream. The door looks familiar, but as soon as you open it,
0: it's another world, another place you haven't been ever. Let's move to The Devils of Loudon, which of course is based on the Aldous Huxley book. Penderecki's first and most popular opera written in 1968 and then it was revised a few times in the 70s and it's based on this French historical event but underscores local power and really has a political commentary denouncing the inequities of a totalitarian state. Subject matter that Penderecki often wanted to display.
1: Well the critical response to that was not friendly. It was not friendly. He had uh, various forces uh, that had to contend with the state coming from a very very Roman Catholic country like Poland. Subject matter was very, very difficult within the church. Inquisitional type material that was 17th century in, in and of itself, being anti-totalitarian, also having that slant of the church was very, very volatile stuff. What influenced me was the type of choral Soloistic writing. One can have the most demanding dissonances and atonal stretches of music and then have uh, pockets of tonality in the traditional romantic composer's tonality. Passion of St. Luke's, the same structures where he has these swashes of gestures. And then you have. The baritone singing an aria, Deus Meus, in G minor. And it sounds so fresh and sounds so powerful. able to reach out, develop in his life another Penderecki that coming out of the great vocal tradition of Europe, the great tonal tradition of the Romantic composers. listening to it's amazing his work from the 1970s from the polish requiem on
0: okay let's finish with the pittsburgh overture
1: Of sonorities that you usually don't expect of brass instruments, with the trombones, the bass trombones, the tuba, for example. And that's all is indicated is the lowest possible note. Play the lowest possible note. He indicated the, the tonguing going from the uh, repetitions to jagged repetitions to uh, as fast as possible. This note and the slide down a half a quarter tone while playing out of sync, uh, not corresponding with the neighbor musician. So it released me, uh, my way of thinking of a brass ensemble. from a metric kind of a vehicle to a, an ensemble that's uh, also takes in
0: sonority references that wasn't on display of previous scores. There's a commission from the American Wind Symphony written in 1967. This illustrates Penderecki's exploration into 12-tone composition. Of course, you heard those sounds. I heard those
1: sounds in Duke Ellington in terms of low brass. Very,
0: very influential on me in terms of brass writing. Right, so you have these extended techniques, a lot of percussion and instruments that are a little unusual for a wind ensemble, but a great result, very evocative piece, very dramatic pacing. Elliot, in closing, I just wanted to get your recollections of last March 29th, when the great maestro passed away. I was
1: hoping to attend his birthday. I was hoping to, just to continue a relationship that was uh, kind of just ignited when we shared that uh, concert. My memories of Christoph Penderecki. The professor, the great maestro, uh, the memories just expanding. You appreciate someone's uh, work when you're alive, when a person is alive, but uh, then you delve into their incredible library and uh, you can see uh, like a universe, uh, you know, um, patterns, uh, structures and so many works that it's uh, worthy of study and listening and just uh, being uh, emotionally involved with. Just a tip of the iceberg in terms of being so lucky as to uh, having a person that you can speak to about stuff you can't speak to anyone else in this globe about. For example, the atmosphere, political atmosphere in the 1957 in Poland and Russia, and you can't just share with anyone. And all of a sudden, all of that possibility is done, it's over person is dead you won't hear Pandoretsky's next great work. I don't know whether you're in your 30s or in your 80s when you uh, one of the million like uh, Pandoretsky, one of the billion, a person's death is, uh, is no words, is no words.
0: Elliot Goldenthal, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to discuss Poland's greatest contemporary composer, Krzysztof Penderecki. Thank you so much, and enjoy your day. This is Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki In Memoriam podcast, created by Anna Peżanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute New York. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. Make sure to subscribe.